We're used to hearing about anti-Semitism in Europe and other places, but did you know that an anti-Semitic incident occurs almost every day here in America? More than 2,700 incidents occurred last year in the U.S. What's the real problem, and how can believers help? That's our conversation coming up. Plus, headlines from the Middle East and updates to your Bible questions. Welcome to another edition of The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, something exciting for this week. It's our commentary kickstart. We're going to give one lucky winner a small collection of very helpful, and I might add expensive, commentaries, including, Charlie, a commentary on Matthew, a two-volume set on the Psalms, and, of course, one commentary on Nehemiah. Charlie, how do people enter to win this commentary kickstart set? Well, there are three key things they need to do. They need to send us uh, their name, their shipping address, and answer a question. One way the program has helped them understand the Bible or the Middle East. So their name, their shipping address, and then that comment on how has the program helped you understand the Bible or the Middle East? That's how we'll help to choose. And then you email that submission to the land and the book at moody.edu. Now, one big catch. Okay. All entries have to be submitted by Sunday, by midnight Sunday, this weekend. And then we'll announce the winners next week. All right. We'll uh, remind you again about our commentary kickstart a little later. Hey, how do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it's sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. You ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? And to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. Uh, this will serve a dual purpose. It'll equip you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supply you with tracts you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracts will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracts, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, let's dive into our current events topics. The top story out of the Middle East this past week has got to be the devastating earthquakes that shook Turkey and Syria. How severely were these two countries impacted as we look, you know, a few days afterward? And, and how are the relief efforts continuing? You know, those two earthquakes that hit this last Monday were both major quakes. Uh, the first at four in the morning was a magnitude 7.8, while the second, which followed in early afternoon, was a 7.6. Thousands of buildings collapsed in at least 14 cities in Turkey and thousands more in 16 cities in Syria. They were catching people at home and in bed. Uh, cement floors pancaked down one on top of another in those apartment complexes. Uh, within the first few hours, the number of dead rose from a few hundred into the thousands, and the number of injured quickly grew to over 20,000. And as rescue crews arrived and began pulling away the rubble, those numbers are continuing to grow. By some estimates, there could be as many as 20,000 dead at the end of it all, and, mm. and they have still no idea. That's just their best guess. Wow. The quakes were centered in southeastern Turkey near its border with Syria. Uh, the impact of the quakes was felt for hundreds of miles. Buildings damaged by the first quake then collapsed when the second one hit. And in addition to the two large tremors, there have been hundreds of small and large aftershocks, which greatly hindered the rescue and recovery efforts. And as if the earthquakes themselves weren't enough, they coincided with the arrival of a major storm system that blew into the region from Europe, bringing rain, snow, gale force winds, and extreme cold. One hospital collapsed in the quake, and airport runways in the region were also damaged by the quake, further hindering relief efforts. 
Now, over 30 countries, including the U.S., the U.K., and EU countries, offered to send help. By Monday evening, uh, the, literally within 24 hours of the quake, Israel had sent a 150-person team to Turkey, and that included both rescue workers and doctors. A second group, along with the field hospital, followed on Wednesday morning. Israel also offered to aid Syria, although the two countries technically have been at war since 1948. Now, early reports suggested Syria might be willing to accept that aid, though later they denied that they would. Hmm. The storm cleared out of the area by the middle of the week as the aid started pouring in. But time is of the essence in trying to locate and rescue anyone who might still be alive and trapped under the rubble. Uh, Let's pray for the relief efforts and for believers in the affected area. Uh, We really need to ask God to protect them and provide practical opportunities for the believers to demonstrate Christ's love to those who have lost so much. And if anybody's willing to help financially, uh, with the relief efforts, well, they might want to check out the Samaritan's Purse website. Uh, they're looking for ways to partner with individuals on the ground uh, who can provide the help. You mentioned that bad weather hampered initial relief efforts, and that was part of Storm Barbara that traveled to the Middle East from Europe. What impact did this storm have on Israel? Well, in Israel's case, I would say short-term pain, long-term gain. Uh, the storm came in on Monday with furious winds and heavy rain and some local flooding. That was the pain. Several teenagers were injured, thankfully not too severely, by falling tree branches. Uh, Several older ladies were blown over and thrown to the ground by the strong winds, which gusted up to 60 miles an hour. Multiple automobile accidents and water rescues were required as motorists failed to heed the warnings of flooded streets. But that short-term pain is also bringing long-term gain. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about the relatively low water level in the Sea of Galilee. It's risen by a foot since then and is now only about five feet below the upper red line. Up to two weeks ago, Jerusalem had only received 30% of their anticipated annual rainfall. After this storm, they're now at 70% of their anticipated annual rainfall. In fact, they're at 110% of what they would normally expect to receive at this point in the season. Now, that's a tremendous increase in just a two-week period. But more rain is still needed. Uh, Northern Israel is still lagging behind in rainfall. So hopefully, several more storm systems will head through the region in the coming weeks to bring the total rainfall back to normal. Rain is a blessing, and we need to trust in Jesus' words in Matthew 5.45, where he said God would send his rain on both the just and the unjust. And whichever side they're on in the Middle East, they need that rain. This is the Land of the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, working our way through a look at current events. By the way, this week, a very special week, we're inviting you to enter our commentary kickstart contest. Details in just a moment. Israelis are still holding weekly rallies to protest the judicial reforms proposed by the government. You talked about this last week, but help us again understand this contentious issue. Yeah, if you read the headlines, it sounds like the current Israeli government wants to turn the country into the Jewish version of uh, Iran, you know, imposing their religious views on everyone else and setting up a system that will defang the judicial branch of the government. But that's not what's being proposed, at least not by most. I'm sure there are some who might want to go that direction, but that's certainly not where Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to take it. Rather, they're pushing to add a greater series of checks and balances to the government to keep Israel from being ruled by what they call the judicial elite. Right now, justices are chosen by a panel in which the majority are either justices themselves or members of the Bar Association. In effect, allowing the justices to become a self-perpetuating group. In a democracy like ours, the executive branch nominates justices, and then they're approved by the legislative branch. 
Israel wants to set up a similar system to allow elected officials to have a greater say in appointing justices. In a democracy like ours, there are limits on who can petition the court, the kind of cases the court can hear. Uh, So someone can't just challenge a law because they don't like it. And the courts can't intervene in deciding on the selection of government officials or foreign relations. But in Israel's current system, the Supreme Court has done both of those on a somewhat regular basis. And finally, in a country like ours, the court's ability to intervene when it comes to the legality of laws or administrative actions is limited by the Constitution. You know, they just can't make up their own reasons for overturning decisions. But in Israel, they have a principle they call reasonableness, which allows the Supreme Court to overturn laws, even if there's no specific legal basis for that decision. So right now, I would say people need to back away from all the inflammatory rhetoric and instead work together to produce a system that can better restore that kind of balance in government. They need it. Well, finally, a company in Israel has developed an artificial intelligence-controlled robot for picking tomatoes. Uh, Charlie, why is something like this needed and how does it work? Well, it's a cool story. Uh, the startup company is called Meadow Motion, and it was started by an engineer who grew up working on a kibbutz, and then he left to uh, work in the aerospace industry. But today in Israel, 1% of Israeli workers are employed in agriculture. They bring in foreign workers to pick the crops, but the number of permits is limited, and uh, frankly, it's quite expensive to bring them in. It makes the cost for producing the crops very expensive. Well, recognizing that as an opportunity in disguise, he left his job in the aerospace industry and founded Meadow Motion in 2017. They developed a greenhouse environment with tomato plants growing in rows, and they developed an autonomous guided vehicle equipped with 3D sensor vision and artificial intelligence. It maps out the plants and the crops. The vehicle drives between the rows of tomatoes. It detects the ones that are ripe for picking. It guides a robotic arm to the location cuts and catches the tomatoes, places them in a conveyor belt, and drops it into an onboard container in the trailer. Now, it can reduce the labor costs by 90% for harvesting and cut overall production costs by 50%. Uh, The prototype system is already up and running in the Netherlands, and the company is expanding into Europe with Canada and the U.S. next. Uh, A robot with artificial intelligence designed in to carefully pick tomatoes in a more cost-effective manner. John, that definitely sounds like something from Amazing Israel. Look for it coming to a hamburger near you. Hey, we're talking about a commentary kickstart contest this week. We're going to send the lucky winner a four commentary set, Matthew, plus two volumes on the Psalms, one on Nehemiah. And uh, you enter by sending your name, your shipping address, and one way that this program has helped you understand the Bible or the Middle East. Or maybe you just have a Bible question for Charlie. Email your submission to the land and the book at moody.edu. You want to enter this commentary kickstart contest? Send us your name, your shipping address, and one way the program has helped you understand the Bible or the Middle East. The land and the book at moody.edu is where you enter. All entries must be received by Sunday midnight. Coming up, anti-Semitism in the U.S. here on The Land and the Book. Recently, the director of the FBI flagged anti-Semitism as a pervasive and present fact and promised to combat the many recent threats of violent extremism. But overcoming this darkness involves all of us, especially followers of Christ. Yet what can we do to make a difference? Let's talk about it next. 
This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Glad that you joined us for segment two. Serene Hudson is the vice president of advocacy at Passages. There, she helps lead efforts to increase support for Israel among young generations of Christian leaders through education and advocacy initiatives. Serene was introduced to the miracle of Israel in college, holds a Master of Arts in Intercultural Studies, and is completing a Master of Arts in Jewish Studies at the Spertus Institute of Jewish Learning and Leadership. She is passionate, for sure, about building alliances between diverse communities, promoting intercultural intelligence, and living a life of service. It has been too long since you were in the studio with us, Serene. Welcome back. Thank you, John. It's so great to be here. Well, for someone new to the term, let me ask you to give us a simple definition of anti-Semitism. Yes, simple is an interesting word because it is actually complex and there's debates about it. But what I can say is that anti-Semitism is hostility towards or discrimination against Jews as a religious, ethnic, or racial group. And that is more of a historical approach to understanding what this phenomenon is. And it takes on lots of different appearances. Yes. In a recent article for Relevant, you wrote, For those of us committed to opposing bigotry as followers of Jesus, fighting anti-Semitism will require a willingness to face ourselves in the history of church anti-Semitism. And let me ask you, is it your feeling that Christians today are somehow excluding Jewish people? What, what examples would you give? Yeah, so I would say this is something I was thinking about as we are coming up on the first anniversary of the synagogue attack in Colleyville, Texas, and thinking about the fact that it was kind of difficult for the Christians in the Dallas DFW area to think about how to, you know, stand with that synagogue. Mm-hmm. And I felt that in kind of approaching that situation, and I live there in DFW area, that because we have excluded as Christians, Jewish people from our general, you know, lives and conversations personally, and also as a church, there really wasn't an easy way to extend Mm. support to that synagogue, unless you were like immediately in that area. So that's kind of a practical application of, of the question, like how is it that we have excluded Jewish people? We just, just the evidence of the awkwardness in our conversation yeah. or interaction yeah. or lack thereof. It's kind of like if you had an old friend that you lost contact with uh-huh. and then you hear that they had a tragedy in, in their life, it's a little bit awkward to then like re-enter that conversation mm-hmm. in order to try to support them. That's a very small, you know, like example of something that is much greater, which is the separation that we have felt between Jewish and Christian communities. Serene Hudson was introduced to the miracle of Israel in college, and today she works with an organization known as Passages. I have to ask you this question. Maybe it's a tough one. Why did nobody stand up to Martin Luther and his anti-Semitic comments in his day, and why have they been seemingly under-challenged in our day by evangelicals? Well, I haven't read everything about that period, so I'm not sure if there was any pushback. Mm -hmm. I think we don't give the pushback today because we don't know about it. Mm. You know, like we were so grateful for the Reformation, right? Yes, oh yes. And the revival that that brought. As we should be. But we don't learn the darker side 
of mm. our Christian history. And it's always hard to look back and to say, hey, the, the things that I celebrate in my faith and Christianity maybe wasn't without some negative mm-hmm. aspects. And so without that knowledge, you can't really push back on the fact that Martin Luther really denigrated Jewish people. And obviously he was at the end of his life and he was really struggling. At that point, he was also sick. Um, so there's there's probably reasons there that uh, there was a lash out, but the impact of his words were quite deadly. Acknowledging that Christians or people claiming to be Christians were certainly part of the Holocaust, I feel like I am at an enormous disadvantage in engaging in any conversation with a Jewish person related to faith. How am I supposed to talk about the good news of Jesus when some of Jesus' followers have meant so much bad news for Jewish people? Well, we can become good news, right? It's a a moment that we realize there has been so much history between our communities of faith, but we don't have to continue Hmm. in that realm. Like we can turn the page. We can say, I'm going to be a different kind of Christian than what Jewish people have experienced, both in history and today. And that was actually the moment that changed my life. I was sitting in class here at Moody. Mm -hmm. It was the history of the Holocaust and the problem of evil. And it was the first time that it got exposed to the writings of the Church Fathers and of Martin Luther. And I remember distinctly coming to this moment of like, what happened? But what am I going to do about it? And so it was a combination of both being educated and also having a heart to see that we didn't have to remain there. And so that's when I felt the Lord calling me into being that different person and not continuing that mode of thinking about Jewish people and of ignoring them or if there is conversation of looking down at them. No, we are going to present the love that we have from Jesus to them freely Mm. and in a way that they would be able to accept. Yeah. Serene Hudson is the vice president of advocacy at Passages, and there she helps lead efforts to increase support for Israel among generations of Christian leaders through education and advocacy initiatives. You know, one great example, I think, of overcoming some of these uh, things that we're talking about here is your experience a few months ago in Pittsburgh at the fourth year anniversary of the synagogue shooting there. Describe what you experienced and the reactions of the Jewish people that you were with. John, Pittsburgh has been very significant for me in this part of my journey. Uh, We went to Pittsburgh for the first time last year with students to engage with the Jewish community there. And uh, we went again, like you mentioned, this year, uh, sitting with the rabbi that was in the synagogue at the shooting Mm -hmm. and to hear how he experienced not just that day, but the days after. And this is on the heels of hearing anti-Semitism coming out from media stars. Um, He was truly angry Mm. and he said to us, but really to America, shame on you, America. Really? that you are allowing this to happen. This is, we're sitting there four years after Mm. his congregants had been shot down and he himself experienced that terror. And so 
listening also then to survivors from the congregation, we met with four of them in, in small groups, and our young passages students and young professionals sitting with each person and hearing their story, it really sensitized us to the humanity of it, right? It's difficult when we are just so bombarded with negative reports and shootings and things to actually like go to where the people are and mm. to hear what that felt like. And you felt that that trip made a positive impact. Definitely. So these are already students that are interested mm-hmm. in improving relations with Jewish communities in their in their states, but it moved them even beyond. And by the end of yeah. that time, they were thinking to themselves like, how do I translate this on my campus or mm-hmm. in my church? And an immediate response that was just so heartwarming for me is, hey, Serene, can our group put a fund together so we can support the survivors mm. group and like give them a dinner like for one of their meetings? Yeah. It was a very tangible experience that I think helped them to cross the bridge from like, there's this huge gap between our communities. What what can I even do to help? To, hey, we can give them a dinner or we can talk about our experience on campus. I think that those immersive educational experiences help us to take courage and say, like, they're just human beings like us and they need our support. Okay, beyond the impact, though, of of you and the students that were with you already, you know, predisposed to love these Jewish people, did you feel like the rabbi? Did you feel like the survivors themselves seemed to appreciate the gesture of your time? Yes, undoubtedly. Yeah. And we know that from the things that they said to us and wrote to us. They said things like, we don't feel like we're alone. Mm. That is a very common theme that I hear when I'm sitting with Jewish friends that like no one cares, no one reaches out to us. Um, But through this experience, they did feel that. And they did tell us um, believers like, in Charleston, who experienced the Mother Emanuel shooting, that community also came around them and showed them the love of Jesus. Today on The Land and the Book, we're joined in studio by Serene Hudson. She's passionate about building alliances between diverse communities and uh, promoting intercultural intelligence, living a life of service, living out the gospel. What does it mean to listen well to Jewish people? Obviously, This visit to Pittsburgh is listening well, but what's another context where you could show what that might look like? Yes, I can talk about a conversation that I had with one of the co-founders of the Colleyville Synagogue. Her name is Anna Eisen, and she is the daughter of two Holocaust survivors. And she was there to connect with us, and we were there to listen Mm -hmm. and And listening has this discipline of not trying to think about what you want to say (laughs) to get to like some topic. Listening is like laying those things aside and receiving that person and their story Mm. as they are. And in that exercise, placing yourselves in their shoes and seeing the world through their eyes. And so even if that means hearing things that are uncomfortable, like, her experience of other Christian communities and what that feels like as a Jewish person, Mm -hmm. you know? And so listening is 
also being willing to sit in discomfort, even if you disagree. It's always uncomfortable. I will not like deny <laughs> that like, I'm always comfortable. Here's one for you. If Christ himself were to visit America's evangelical churches one by one, what message do you think he might share about anti-Semitism? I would say he would desire for his followers to love his people. And I really take pause at that question, John, because it, it hits to the heart of my passion, which is that Jesus is Jewish. And he will never despise, reject, or forget them, no matter how they feel about him. And so I think he would say, they are my people. I came from them and I gave them to you. I allowed you to benefit from the riches of the revelation that God gave and you have despised and rejected and scorned them. And stop, welcome them as I did unconditionally. And they are my brothers. They have not ceased to be my brothers. And I have a plan for them, and I love them. Well, it's a very tough question to ask and a tougher question probably to answer, but thank you for letting me ask it. Our time is gone. What a, what a deep and rich conversation this has been with Serene Hudson, who serves with Passages. Thank you for making the effort to be with us. Thank you, John. It's a privilege, and I'm so grateful for this program and for all of your listeners. Well, you've led the way for us in so many ways, so uh, we're right back at you. Well, more to come on today's program, including uh, Charlie Dyer's answers to so many questions that are piling up. I'm looking forward to that. Hope you stick around for more here on The Land and the Book. Question. How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it is sometimes pretty challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. Have you ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. Now, this will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life in Messiah's prayer is that these tracts will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. Now, to receive this helpful assortment of tracts, all you need to do is visit online lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. Well, speaking of questions, we're lined up with a whole bunch of them in this third segment on the program. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger, and with no further ado, Let's uh, start with Todd's question. Could you please shed some light on the first line of Psalm 121? It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. I've heard it variously explained as the hills negatively being a place of danger, the hills as a place of strenuous travel, or positively as the hills being the place where God resides in some sense. How would you explain this phrase? Well, I think the key is noticing that Psalm 121 is part of the Psalms of Ascents, that group of 15 psalms sung by the Jewish pilgrims you know, as they traveled to or ascended to Jerusalem to celebrate the different festivals. Now, as the psalmist looked at the rugged journey ahead as he was heading to Jerusalem, he starts, I think, by asking a very difficult question. I lift up my eyes. I see the hills. 
Where's my help going to come from? He was seeing all the obstacles and difficulties that were ahead, but he then provides a very reassuring answer. My hope comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The problems ahead might be bigger than me, but they're no match for the God who's watching over me. And then in three two-verse couplets, the writer explains how he could have such confidence. He knew he could trust God because God was ever awake, verses 3 to 4, ever watching, verses 5 to 6, and everlasting, verses 7 to 8. But anyway, to get back to the main question you asked, the hills are the unknown places before us that can often be places of danger, and there are things in life that are bigger than us and that can threaten to overwhelm us. But those are the times when we're to turn our attention from the mountains to the God who made the mountains. Nothing is bigger or stronger than him, and he's the one who's promised to take care of us all through life and on into eternity. Charlie, for me, this psalm is a classic example of what a trip to Israel does. I'd never thought about it. Now you go there and you see the steepness of the hills, the lack of safety, <laughs> the, uh, the fraught with danger possibilities at every step. Man, that thing comes alive. Suddenly you're going, there are no uh, ambulances, there are no helicopters to pick up these people that fall. It, it was a dangerous trek. It was a dangerous trick, and that's why I believe that psalm was put in the Psalms of Ascent, because the people were to be singing that and reminding themselves, God is there, and he's bigger than these problems I'm facing. Another psalm question, Psalm 46, verse 5. Penny asks, who or what is meant by her and she? That's the verse in the psalm that says, God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Is that an incorrect use of this verse to appeal to women? Well, to give an answer, I need to explain just a little bit about Hebrew. You know, in English, we have masculine, feminine, and neuter prepositions. Uh, but in languages like French or Italian or Spanish or Greek or Latin or Hebrew, uh, they identify objects as masculine or feminine. So here's an example. In this immediate context, the word city in verse 4, the noun city in Hebrew is feminine. So instead of referring to a city as it, like we would, uh, the proper Hebrew pronoun would be she or her. Having mentioned the city of God, Jerusalem, in verse 4, uh, the writer then goes on to say God is within her, so she will not fail. Uh, in English, we would have likely said God is within it, the city, so it, the city, won't fall. Now, I think the best way to apply the verse is first to understand in the context what God is saying is his presence can provide shelter and protection even when it looks as if the very creation around us is falling apart. You know, that's why he says in that psalm, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea. Uh, that truth can be applied to anyone who's feeling threatened. So in that sense, it can be applied to women and men, though initially the verse is referring to Jerusalem. We sure love your company here at The Land and the Book, and we got a podcast available for you at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Temetope asks, I'm confused about the story in Jeremiah 35. The Bible says we should not get drunk with wine. Why then did God command Jeremiah to call the children of the Rechabites and give them wine to drink? What if they were to get drunk? Well, you're right in saying the Bible forbids drunkenness, but in this passage, Jeremiah doesn't encourage these people to become drunk. He simply places wine out for them to drink, which is something God did permit. So we need to ask what the point was of, of Jeremiah's action here. And that requires us to look just a bit deeper into the background. Uh, this group in question were the Rechabites. They're a nomadic family who were friends with the children of Judah. Uh, their ancestor had laid out commands for them as a group, and that included living in tents and never drinking any wine. Now, those weren't commands from God. Uh, they were the commands set out by the family patriarch, which the group were still trying to follow. 
when Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land that had forced them to seek refuge inside Jerusalem, which is why they were in the city. Now, Jeremiah uses this family as an object lesson to the people of Judah. He was showing that this clan of nomads were more faithful in following the commands of their earthly father than the people of Judah were in following the commands of their heavenly father. I think verse 14 is the key there. He says, Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. And then God says, but I've spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. And that's why Jeremiah then drives home the point by announcing God was going to destroy Jerusalem and Judah because they were disobedient. And it was even being highlighted by the obedience of this group of Rechabites. Kem asks, could you please help me understand what appears to be a discrepancy between 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, where it reads, He, the Lord, incited David, and 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, where it reads, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Obviously, if Satan incited David, it was sinful. However, I'm confused about why it says the Lord incited him. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I start with what we know about the character of God. James 1, 13 tells us, God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, uh, though we know God can allow us to be tested. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, in light of this truth about God, how do we harmonize these two chapters? Well, we're never told the specific action taken by David that prompted God's anger against him. It could have been pride at his military victories or possibly a lack of trust in God's protection. But whatever prompted it, in verse 10, David eventually acknowledged that he had acted foolishly in demanding the census. In response to David's initial sin, God allowed Satan to incite David to demand the census. Now, I see this being similar to God allowing Satan to trouble King Saul or earlier God permitting Satan to attack Job. For whatever reason, in this case, God permitted Satan to tempt David to assess his military strength rather than to rely on God. And David succumbed to that temptation. And I think God is listed as the ultimate cause in 2 Samuel 24 because he's the one who permitted Satan to to initially tempt David to sin. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Ed says, I truly love your show and never miss it. He says, I listen in Puerto Rico, where the program is on ambj.am radio on Sundays. Last night, he says, I watched a a thought-provoking video, which I would like to share with you and know your thoughts on the information. So what was that video, Charlie, and what is your assessment? Well, I decided not to list the video for our listeners, but I, I can say this. I did take time to watch the video but I really can't accept the individual's reasoning. Now, here's, here's the problem. If you look closely at the lunar eclipses this individual identifies as uh, being prophetically significant, well, not all of them were actually visible in Europe or the Middle East. So it seems to me God wouldn't base future events on celestial signs not visible to whom he's speaking. And second, and Purim was part of the uh, video, Purim wasn't part of the original prophetic spring-fall festival cycle, which prophetically pointed toward the first and second comings of Jesus. Uh, It was added as a festival during the intertestamental period. Now, when it comes to prophecy, and here's the key point, I think we're on far safer ground to focus on the books where God gives us specific information as it does relate to end times. You know, books like Daniel and Zechariah, uh, Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Timothy 3, or the book of Revelation. And we can learn an awful lot about God's program for the future in those books. But when we move beyond them, we're in danger of setting dates and times that aren't specifically intended by God. And my concern is that then when those dates turn out to be wrong, which has happened multiple times with various predictions made over the years, 
Well, that causes people to doubt the truth of God's Word, and God's Word is true. Donna wants to know, in 1 John 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman knows Jesus is a Jew. How can she tell what distinguishes the Jews and Samaritans by look? Yeah, we don't have much historical or archaeological information on how the Jews and Samaritans dress, though I think they probably did have some distinguishing characteristics that would have been obvious to those at the time. However, it's even more likely their dialect and accent were different enough to enable the woman to recognize Jesus wasn't from the local region. And I say that because she mentioned their religious and cultural differences only after Jesus spoke and asked her for a drink. So I suspect her initial impressions about him being Jewish were then confirmed when he spoke. Love, love, love these questions that have come in, and yours is welcome too. We're not done. We're coming back for one more segment, Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's next. Well, it's Valentine's season, and here at The Land of the Book, we haven't overlooked that. In fact, Charlie, am I correct that your devotional we're about to dig into has something to do with Valentine's? Uh, It does, John. has a definite Valentine's Day theme. All right, we're going to head to a book that is all about love, and you'll find yourself in this great story as you stick with us here on The Land of the Book. First, though, a pause to consider this Holy Land experience. I love it when people go to the Holy Land come back with their impressions, and share them with us like this listener does. Hi, my name is Amber Valdez. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, I was actually able to live in Jerusalem for a year and studied there at um, a Jewish Messianic college, Israel College of the Bible, which has since moved to Tel Aviv. But um, my experience living in Israel has changed my life forever. Um, I will never read the Bible the same as I did before. Just um, understanding more of the context of the Old Testament, uh, learning from a a Jewish perspective and what was going on in the Old Testament, what was going on in the early church, and just understanding a little bit more of the background helps me to read and interpret the Bible differently today. Hi, my name is Deb. I'm from Carmel, Indiana. And what I remember most about my trip to Israel was just being around the Sea of Galilee, just all the stories you heard growing up and... um, and just being there and knowing that this is actually where Jesus walked and he was here and and all the stories that you heard, you know, just the storms coming up on the sea and it was just exciting to be there. And when I read scripture now, I can picture those places and um, it really helps. It makes it a great advantage to being able to read scripture and have that visual. Well, in the spirit of Valentine's Day, let's turn things over to Charlie Dyer for a very special devotional. Charlie? Uh, Thanks, John. Yeah, Valentine's Day is almost here. I hope you bought a Valentine for your special someone. But if not, I've got an idea for you. Now, actually, whenever I say something like that, my wife rolls her eyes because she knows the next thing out of my mouth will be a totally off-the-wall suggestion that only the most gullible would even think about following. But knowing that you've now been forewarned, Follow me into the Judean wilderness just east of the Mount of Olives. The winter rains have arrived and the hills have become a light carpet of green. Scattered among the new grass are patches of wildflowers, individual carpets of red and yellow and white mixed into the grass. And just on the hill opposite where we're standing are two flocks grazing their way down the hillside. The black and dark brown are goats, while the flocks of white are sheep. The sheep and goats are easy to tell apart, even at this distance. But back to my original comment. If you haven't yet bought a valentine for your loved one, then why not write out your own? 
And to make it biblical, use the Song of Solomon. Here, I'll get you started. My beloved, you remind me of a flock of goats. Your teeth look like sheep, and I'm glad there aren't any gaps in your smile. And your forehead looks like someone sliced a pomegranate in half and stuck both pieces there. Now, isn't that romantic? Send that, and I can almost guarantee you will get a response. Probably not the one you want, but you will know exactly what your special friend thinks of you. Okay, the fun's over. Now, what does all this have to do with the Bible and with you? Well, in the Song of Solomon, both Solomon and his bride use a great many figures of speech to describe the beauty of the other. The problem is that those figures are based on life in an agrarian 10th century B.C., while we live in the industrialized 21st century A.D., All too often, their imagery and figures of speech are lost on us, urban and suburban folk. We miss the comparison intended by the speaker and instead make up our own, often with rather unexpected results. Uh, One example can be found in Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Solomon describes his bride using both geographical and zoomorphic comparisons. He first says, You are beautiful, my darling, as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem. But let's be honest, how many of you know where Tirzah is located or what it looks like? It's actually a beautiful, well-watered area northeast of Shechem. At a later time in history, it served as the temporary capital for the northern kingdom of Israel. The plentiful water supply allowed crops and vineyards to grow in abundance. In a land that turns brown in the summer, Tirzah was an oasis. We have a more complete picture of Jerusalem, though Jerusalem in Solomon's day was much smaller and less crowded and congested than the one we visit today. In the next verse, Solomon compares her hair to a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Gilead's on the other side of the Jordan Valley, and we don't have time to drive there today. But when we compare someone to a goat, it's usually not a good comparison. Get busy, you old goat. But to help understand what Solomon had in mind, look over at that flock of goats on the other hillside. As they bunch together and follow one another down the side of the hill, it gives the impression of long flowing tresses of hair shimmering softly in the breeze. Their dark color suggests the shining raven black hair of his beloved. Perhaps his bride-to-be smiled at the comparison because Solomon then focused on her white teeth, which he compared to a flock of freshly washed sheep, each with its twin, We might say, my, but you have a beautiful smile. But Solomon paused to focus on something that was likely far more prized in a time without toothpaste, toothbrushes, floss, and fluoride. She had a prized smile that flashed from side to side without any gaps. Smiles release endorphins, and Solomon's pastoral comparison likely caused her smile to widen even more. Solomon's beloved was veiled, but behind the veil he could see her reddish temples and cheeks. Almost like a woman today using blush, this bride-to-be had a natural color that was noticed and appreciated by her fiancé. The pomegranate has a dark red color that's quite distinctive, and Solomon wanted her to know that he saw and appreciated her beauty. Okay, so Solomon didn't tell his bride-to-be that she had hair like a goat. Instead, he used imagery from the surrounding countryside, Tirzah, Jerusalem, and Gilead, to compare her to something beautiful. And then he used zoomorphic comparisons, a flock of goats descending a hillside, a flock of sheep coming out of a pool where they'd been washed to describe her flowing hair and pearly white smile. And Solomon even used a simile to compare her temples and cheeks to the dark blush of the pomegranate. So as we head toward the bus, what lessons for our lives today can we take with us from Solomon's words in the Song of Solomon? (laughs) I'd like to suggest two. First, 
Take time this week to compliment someone you really care about. You don't need to talk about goats, sheep, and pomegranates, but look for ways to describe what it is about the person you appreciate. It could be as simple as buying a Valentine card and then taking time to pen a note inside, letting your special someone know why you care for them. And it doesn't need to be a spouse or fiancé. Why not send a card to someone at church who struggles with loneliness or depression and let them know that you're thinking about them and praying for them? A kind word or deed can help make that person's day. And second, don't view this as a one-and-done assignment. I find it interesting that in the Song of Solomon, Solomon says nearly the same thing about his beloved in both chapter 4 and chapter 6. He shared his thoughts on more than one occasion. Now, we all struggle to put our thoughts into words. But read Gary Chapman's book on the five love languages and look for multiple ways to say, I love you and I appreciate you to those with whom you come in contact. It doesn't always need to be romantic love. We're told to love one another and a good way to follow that command is to let others know how much we appreciate them. So wipe that pomegranate juice off your forehead, you old goat, and get busy. (laughs) All right, the juice is wiping off. And Charlie, there are two thank yous that come to my mind. And one would be a thank you to the management at this station for carrying the land of the book. You and I are grateful, but wouldn't it be neat if listeners put some feet to this message that you just shared by thanking the management at this station for carving out airtime? I think that's a great idea, John. You know, the the stations put the programs out over the air, uh, but they don't always know whether they're meeting the needs of people. So someone taking time to write back and saying, this program met my need, actually is an encouragement to that station and to the manager there. And uh, it would mean a lot to the station. Second email you could uh, send would be your question. Maybe there's one that's been rattling around in your head as you study the scriptures. Right now I'm going to the Gospel of Luke, and I know I'll have a zillion questions, but if you've got one, why not email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie, how long does it take when somebody does email you a question to get an answer? Well, what I say is I try and answer within one or two days maximum to get a response back. Now, it may take several weeks until we actually get that on the, on the program, right. uh, but I'm just uh, obsessive about trying to answer people's (laughs) questions as rapidly as I can. uh, Because uh, if I have a question, I like to get the answer and I want to respond the same way to other people as well. And your question again is welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Been a great program. Thank you for being a part of it. If you'd like to hear some of it or all of it, you can at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Maybe you'll want to particularly listen again to Charlie's devotional from the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, Hair Like a Flock of Goats. That'll do it for today's broadcast. For our host, Charlie Dyer, our producer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger, thanking you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.